there's not really a difference between life and politics. And I don't really feel like there's a difference between the way that I understand the world or try to make meaning and, and my artistic practices. And I, I couldn't access metaphor for a really long time. So my writing practice like just fell to the wayside. Where promises cave and prayers go to curdle. I think something that's very common with a lot of like explicitly political art and also especially like certain kinds of Marxist viewpoints is a real like kind of black and white look on the world, like a really prescribed understanding, which is not what I think makes beautiful art, is not what I think makes for like even uh, good theories of social struggles. All of these social workers are fully burnt out. They've been reeling. There's been like an overdose crisis for years. In becoming friends with people outside, a lot of people were like, we have to advocate for what people are saying they need. But in moments where like people are dying on the street or where government is refusing basic humanitarian aid to people, I don't know that metaphor is always that helpful. This is Downstream from What? I'm Kem Moffat, and today I'm talking with Simone Schmidt. Yeah, my name's Simone Schmidt, and I'm a multidisciplinary artist. I've worked in printmaking and visual arts, writing, and probably most publicly, song. So what really strikes me um, is that your art is so tied to practices of social justice. It's kind of imbued um, in so many different types of work you do. Um, And I'm wondering if you could talk about the journey to this type of practice, this type of art practice. My experience is that I was just raised in a time and in a family that was concerned with social justice. Uh, My parents were part of the Catholic left. And while I have a lot of problems with Catholicism and the Catholic left, um, within like our rituals and tradition was going to protest and like bear witness. Um, And so that was like the consciousness with which I was raised. And you grow up with something you don't know any, you you don't know any different, right? Um, Well, my entire time growing up was during the Harris regime. So a conservative government that cut, uh, cut, cut, cut social programs and education. And my mother was a teacher. And so at the time there was a lot of uh, push to support uh, my mother in her labor context, but also we felt it because teachers were striking and they were doing work to rule and our support staff was going on strike. And so at a very young age, I was showing up to Queen's Park and demonstrating in support of my teachers and my mom. And and um, that was also during the anti-globalization movement, right? I'm 39. And so as a teenager, like my sister was involved in a lot of uh, anti-capitalist organizing. And, you know, the first time I got gassed was when I was 16 and I went to Quebec City and we were protesting the FTAA. And my mother was there, my sister was there. It was like, we didn't all go as a family, but we were all there. And um, so this was just like part of 
a social reality. Um, to me, there's not really a difference between life and politics. And then as an extension, I don't really feel like there's a difference between um, like the way that I understand the world or try to make meaning and, and my artistic practices, right? So the notion that they might be divided is not unfamiliar because I also grew up then in a time where it stopped being cool to be political. I grew up, you know, in my early 20s in the era of vice before vice co-opted radical politics where it was like actually just edgelord paradise and all these guys being like super offensive. Um, and And I remember like when I began putting out music that it was almost embarrassingly political to be writing about what I was compelled to write about. Nonetheless, I didn't know how to write any differently. That's uh, incredible. That's how um, my sense of your work. Um, and one of the things you said about your family background is in terms of bearing witness. Um, it seems that... Um, um, if I might, in terms of my impression of your work, you bear witness well and often. Um, and I think what I'd like to do is move to Audible Songs from Rockwood. Um, you know, my background is social work, so Audible Sounds uh, really resonated for me. And also in terms of some of my own archival research. Um, and I... If I might, I think you really nail the struggle of the archives and the definitions of the patriarch, the heteropatriarch, and the colonizer, um, and do it in such an interesting way. Could you um, maybe just start by describing Audible Songs from Rockwood for us, and then uh, we can talk a little more about that. So, Audible Songs from Rockwood, the first part of it was like that I got a song and I got a song while I was doing research about the carceral system. I read an article in the Kingston Wick Standard. It was about how um, at the beginning of the asylum, as it was being built, they had to put all these people who were dubbed criminally insane, which is this new designation of criminal, um, somewhere. And they moved them onto the property where the asylum was being built. And they put the men to live in like this old house uh, that people had previously lived in. And they put the women to live in the horses stables. And when I read that, I was so struck by like on a, on a visceral level, like what would that have been like? At the time, it was like 2012 and I was writing a lot of old time uh, songs because uh, I was collaborating with this great banjo player called Chris Cool, a really like important teacher of mine. And um, at the time, I was like in this mode of like always wanting to write things into songs. So I wrote this song from the perspective of someone living at Rockwood and I in the horses stables and, and I, I sang it around for years. So it was just with me. And I remember at like a, a show, I, I started to realize I didn't actually know that much more about Rockwood. And I was wondering like, what, like am I fit to sing this song? So I, I started to research the institution. And when I did, I realized that there was actually like no information about it except for one article by this woman, Kathleen Kendall. And so I looked at her references. 
was a two-page article, and they they were all primary sources. And so that's how I started to do archival research. And archival research is kind of addictive because you like go into the archive and it feels like almost forbidden. You have to wear white gloves and you're like trying to go through the thing, you know, like, like it's like you're on the beat in a way. And I was going through what was left of all these people at Rockwood. And I was going with the intention to learn more, but also to write songs. And this became more and more complicated as a goal. And so Long story short, it took me like five years to complete the project because I wanted to make um, that complication visible to people. When you do archival research, um, well, for me, what I what I realized is I was learning a lot more about the systems of power, the police or the uh, superintendent of the asylum, the doctors, the people who were making notes about um, the women who were incarcerated at Rockwood. And so really it's a portrait of power that you get in the archive. And to try to like assume the voice of someone subject to that power is problematic. Um, and so, yeah, I could see the parallels between that problem of representation, the problem of like wanting to hear a voice from someone who's long gone, who you can't hear. And then a lot of the problems that come up in folk music in general, because folk music has this practice of song collection. The Smithsonian Folkways archive is like where we get a lot of uh, the earliest recordings of blues, people who were enslaved, who were singing work songs. Um, Like, you know, a lot of the ballads in old-time music were collected by ethnomusicologists. And those ethnomusicologists were outside of the community where they were doing the recording. And they would interpret the songs. They would collect, they would record, they would transcribe. And then they'd, they'd talk about the culture from an outside perspective. And they would talk about it with an authority that is like, should be problematized. And so... I could see the parallels between like the doctor, the cop, and the ethnomusicologist. And so that that's the effort in Audible Songs from Rockwood is to provide these songs that I've imagined, that I've made audible, and then provide a critique of that project um, in in an artful way. One of the things that interested me um, is that you, there's a separate identity for the ethnographer, a kind of alter ego. How, why was that important? Yeah. I, uh, I kind of have a hunch, but I'm not sure why that was important. Well, I think so that someone would ask me this question, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like necessarily a work of fiction. Yes. And so that fictional ethnomusicologist is like can be trusted as much as you trust a fictional character uh-huh. and I think to like live with that consciousness and to like uh, destabilize that power or believability is, is important for me yeah 
It's interesting. You you need to work when you're working from the archive like this, as you discuss, um, through the lens of class, gender, heteropatriarchy. You know, you're going from very sketchy notes, I'm imagining, for the type of mm -hmm. uh, archival things I've seen around institutional representations of character. What it interested me as someone who had done archival research is then you add this lyrical element of the song. Uh, mm. uh, can you talk about the creation of the song? Like you have a few facts and then you have to create a kind of imagination of the person, I guess. Yeah. I've always written from uh, this, like, a full background sort of character. I rarely write autobiographically in my music. Um, and, of course, that doesn't mean that I'm not present in the music. I always am. But um, with this creative process, with research-based songwriting, you can, you know, it's, it's cool because a song has a form and that form has a wisdom usually and you can break that form or you can follow that form. Um, but, like, what's an example? So, like, there's this one character um, who I learned about and I learned about, like, all of these people whose songs I purport to be singing um, through a big document called like the ledger. The ledger is this big book. It's got like a list of like every person who's ever lived in Rockwood and has their name, their nationality, um, their age, the date of their admission, the date of their uh, uh, release, um, what they're diagnosed with. If they have a county of origin, like all the statistical information, and then they're assigned a number as well. And then there were folders with like really brittle pieces of paper, intake forms, maybe uh, associated correspondence. Um, and some of those uh, folders were like very sparse and some of them were a little less sparse, but they're all sparse. And then the other information I would have would be like uh, like literally the journals of the superintendent. The superintendent's like the guy who's in charge. Um, and so uh, you could track what was happening from his point of view, his recorded point of view, and then like the stay of a, a person. What years were they uh, incarcerated uh, based on that ledger? And so... You know, all this research that you do into the context informs then how, how, like, I would imagine things might be experienced. And so, um, something like, like, like a good songwriter uses metaphor, right? Or like uses imagery, uh, that's evocative. And usually, you know, you're, you're drawing that, that imagery from your experience, so in a song like House of Lost Words, it's like a song that was written based on a case file that contained the correspondence between a man who was in Texas who was interested in his wife who had been incarcerated at Rockwood and the superintendent. And the man writes and he's like, come, like, I, I've been like wondering, like, what's what's up with my wife? How's she doing? And 
and the superintendent writes back. He's like, oh, she's like totally fine. Like you, you should come pick her up. <laughs> he's like, well, I, I can't be there in any like any shorter than a year. So like here's some money uh, for her clothes. And he's like, great, thanks. See you later. And then the next piece of correspondence is like dated 30 years later. And it's a letter from her daughter. And she's like, we always wondered what happened to my mom. Can you can you please send word? And the superintendent writes back and he's like, oh, yeah, like your mom is totally cool. Like you're like she's here. Uh, you, you should come pick her up. But then according to the ledger, no one ever picked her up because dated later was her death. So this was someone who would have like lived at the asylum for over 30 years. They would have seen they would have moved from the horses stables into like the main out like the main building um what i knew of the conditions of that building was that it was like badly heated um that the food was often bad because there were commissioners that reported on that um i knew that people were like put in very small rooms with like just a slat through which uh their food was uh shoved at mealtime but that it was so cold in the in the winter that they had to like um, huddle together. And so all of those like sensory experiences are quite a, like, you know, are, are imbued in the text of this song. It's called House of Lost Words. So in the song House of Lost Words, you hear, you know, her talking about uh, like where promises cave and prayers go to curdle. And this like idea of curdling, like, came directly from the fact that I knew her food would have been rotten, you know? And so it, it's just like all those details are 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 in in the archive, but then you imagine what would what would the words be to describe the experience? I mean, that's like a really basic thing, I guess, but um every word in that album was picked purposefully and not always picked because it was true, but because I imagine this character might have perceived it that way. I particularly remember that song, and there's a heartbreaking quality to it to me. There's an emotion to it. I mean, um, you have the woman incarcerated, and you have the men talking without her reference. Do you know what I mean? Like, she's invisibilized yeah. in their discussion, and, and yeah. she's dependent on him showing up. Which never happens, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, this is like the experience of women who, because at the time, and I think this is important to rem remember about like uh, property relations in the settler state is that women began at, as chattel property.
I'm going to try this question in terms of inhabiting in, in a way, if not bearing witness or perhaps inhabiting, um, the imagining other people. So you do it um, with audible songs from Rockwood. And are you similarly doing it with Joe Wallace uh, with, in terms of you wrote Joe Wallace's poetry into music, into songs. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we could start with you talking a little bit about what you did with the poetry of Joe Wallace and who Joe Wallace yeah. is. I got a call in like 2019 from Sarah Wiley, who's a filmmaker who was working on a experimental documentary about a poet called Joe Wallace. Um, he was a communist and he was a really really famous poet in uh the ussr and in china his poetry was used to teach uh people english and he was an active member of the communist party and was uh, incarcerated in petawawa as a result of actions he took um and most of us have never heard of him his poetry is out of print and at the time, it, when he was an active poet, like Milton Acorn would have been his contemporary and would have made fun of him. Like he really was not a well-respected poet. Um, anyways, Sarah's film is about the archive, what gets lost, what gets censored, and what we are kind of taught about Canada and about communist history in Canada. And it's, you know, a, a critique of the archive, but also she she brings up uh, the history of, of social struggle and the prominence of the Communist Party in terms of labor struggles like in the Winnipeg general strike and, and really important uh, moments for, for workers' rights in, in Canada. And um, she complicates it a lot in terms of, like, thinking critically about the settler state and communism within the settler state. Um, so it's a beautiful undertaking um, to really tell a story and interrogate why is it that we don't know about this, like, legacy of communist activity and art. And um, so she asked me if I would, like, pick five of this poet's poems and put them into song and then they became central to the documentary that she was making and uh this was a a difficult undertaking because i cover songs and i write my own songs but i don't usually write other people's words into songs it was awesome though because she asked me right before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit and i like my my brain like became uh, like it got rewired into like being obsessed with like only the imperative, mm. <laughs> and and I I couldn't access metaphor for a really long time. So my writing practice like mm. just fell to the wayside, and so I had this project of of being able to sing someone else's words. So I went through and I kind of felt quite critical of a lot of his poetry. Um, I think something that's very common with a lot of like explicitly political art and also especially like um, uh, certain kinds of like Marxist 
viewpoints is a real like kind of black and white look on the world, like a really prescribed understanding and a lack of nuance, which is not what I think makes beautiful art, is not what I think makes for like even uh, good theories of social struggle, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's always honest, but I do think that like he has some beautiful imagery um, in some of his poetry. And uh, so, yeah, I picked what, what worked in terms of like what I thought could be sung and repeated in, in, in a way that was beautiful and convincing. You mentioned the time of COVID, the beginning of COVID that we all lived through, the beginning of the pandemic, and you mentioned only the imperative. Can you explain a little more what that means to you, only the imperative? Yeah, like what has to be done in a moment, yeah. what must be done, and uh, articulating what I was experiencing and seeing and and how I was responding. And uh, yeah, I I think for me, a lot of poetry is a way of sublimating emotion or lyrics are a way of like articulating complexity. But in moments where like people are dying on the street or where uh, government is refusing <laughs> basic humanitarian aid uh, to people. Um, I don't know that metaphor is always that helpful. And so this wasn't really a choice of mine. I will say I just like couldn't access metaphor. Yeah. Like everything was just so stark and so plain and and right there. And there was no reason to take a... a um, like take a big trip yeah. <laughs> in order to, to articulate something, you know? It was, there was no reason to communicate in any other way. But yeah, I, I guess I was at the time organizing um, the Encampment Support Network with a bunch of my friends. And uh, a lot of what I was doing was interpreting uh, what we were seeing on the ground um, in the streets of Toronto as the shelters were emptied out at the beginning of COVID. So you were one of the founders of the Encampment Support Network. Yeah. If you could just specifically describe it, what some of the actions you took through the Encampment Support Network. So the Encampment Support Network began in like around May 2020. We, my friend Ginger and my friend Jeff had been called to support this initiative um, that was happening where like a lot of the social workers of conscience uh, were like trying to defend people who were living outside from being evicted from their encampments. The reason why there were so many visible encampments in Toronto at the time was because the capacity in the shelter system had been reduced. Um, people are really crammed in the shelter system, right? There's not a lot of room. And so, um, you know, in an effort to try to make sure people weren't getting uh, COVID and there weren't mass infections, a bunch of activists had sued the city of Toronto and been like, you, you have to have like a six-foot rule. Um, people can't be in bunks. People can't be like sleeping on mats. Then they were being told that they couldn't, like, shelter in place in tents. So we started to do, like, kind of 
encampment defense, which could be anything from like just showing up and organizing a lot of people to 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 be present so that the city couldn't actually evict people. Um, people would just like stand in front of bulldozers and like all the heavy machinery. I just remember like my friend Ginger Dean being like, oh, like people don't have basic basic like people don't have water like at the time you couldn't go into tim hortons Mm -hmm. right like the city's infrastructure for unhoused people is so bad we're like currently obviously people are fighting for warming centers but that's because like there's no there's nothing for people the city of toronto like hasn't been giving out basic survival gear to people living outside since david miller was mayor uh he you know introduced the housing first idea which was like you're going to provide people with housing rather than like survival gear and so like no city agency get, would give out like sleeping bags or anything like that but of course like no one is being given housing mm-hmm. so like this is like a really really cruel policy um people need survival gear people need tents people need sleeping bags and then during covid like the, when nothing was open people didn't have washrooms so yeah we started to try to like lend to efforts that were happening around um advocating for uh basic humanitarian aid and then we realized like the city wasn't going to do it and they were going to lie and so we were going to report on what we were seeing and we were going to provide for people as best as we could so we like organized like drives for basic humanitarian aid tents snacks water coffee in the winter time we organized by neighborhood so we had like different neighborhood committees there were five neighborhood committees and they were made up of volunteers who would go daily to encampment sites and provide uh basic humanitarian aid for people, ask if they wanted, you know, us around and stuff like that and try to be in like consensual solidarity in that sense. Um, And then like as people build relationships, like you learn more about like how the city's crisis respond is and isn't functioning in becoming friends with people outside. A lot of people were like, we have to advocate for what people are saying they need. Not just sourcing, but actually trying to push the government to alter their processes and their policies and stop like a very abusive and uh, <laughs> torturous, I will say, uh, behavior. Mm-hmm. And then we, um, you know, like just worked with different people who were living outside to articulate what it was that they were experiencing within their level of comfort. Because, you know, people get criminalized more for standing up for themselves all the time. The short of it is that the Encampment Support Network was a network of five neighborhood committees and adjacent committees that provided basic humanitarian aid to people who were uh, unhoused during the early pandemic and then like went on to advocate in community for what people wanted and, and needed. And I believe um, you uh, did a call out to artists, an artist network when you started this. Um, And I have read where you talked about how artists um, would have an understanding of the precarity, if if that's correctly put, um, that there might have been a special role for artists in this. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that artists are such a wide swath of the population, but a lot of artists that I know, people working in music and people working in the arts are freelancers who are living month to month. And for the most part, people I know would have been unhoused had it not been for CERB. We were collecting $2,000 a month, and that gave a lot of people the freedom to survive, Mm -hmm. pay rent. But, you know, like a lot of people, because they work without institutional support, are incredibly industrious. They're used to driving. You know, if you're a musician, you drive around for hours. You you provide for yourself. You know how to do it cheaply. And you know how to make things happen. And so that know-how, because of the lack of institutional support for so many of us, meant that people, like, really knew how to get jobs mm-hmm. done. And... um yeah, I think that, it, you know, there are all kinds of people who are musicians and there are people in encampments who are musicians and artists and the freedom, the ability to keep making art, showing art, performing is something that more and more in a city like Toronto is reserved for the wealthy. So I think like there are obviously like class differences between uh people who are like able to keep pursuing full-time art careers and people who are living in shelters but like I don't my friend Richard he used to always say it's like a it's an inch between the limo and the curb mm-hmm. and I think like a lot of people can relate to that Downstream from what is a co-creation of myself, Ken Moffat, and Ben McCarthy. Art is by Autumn Fazari. Original score by Ben McCarthy. Downstream from what is created under the auspices of the Jack Layton Chair and is funded by the Dean Faculty of Arts, the Dean Faculty of Community Services at Toronto Metropolitan University. You know I worked very fast Struggling for something much greater than I Turning my thoughts Picking up lots While scrubbing with solvents And breathing them in My body's work did not meet I could see better coming